Just a quick disclaimer, I do curse in this episode, so it may not be appropriate for everyone. Dude, F living in a big ass city. Yeah, it's cool cause there's everything around, but I hate driving in it. People are recklessly swerving around in two-ton metal meteors, 200 miles an hour, like two inches away from each other. I'm trying to move out like an hour outside the city or something. I need some land. I'm trying to build myself a country castle, but like with fiber internet. That's really the dream for me, and I kind of realized it during the very depths of the great pandemic. Once you start spending all your time where you sleep, you realize how small it is. But the housing market was, is, uh, insane. There wasn't as much of a reason to live in a luxury apartment near your office anymore. So people wanted to get some larger domiciles for their puppies and their kitties. And at the same time, the Fed dropped interest rates super low to try and slow an upcoming recession. Demand exploded, but supply didn't, and shit got crazy. Um... Back in my day, way back before our parents got on Facebook, we had an epic crash. It was the best crash. Everyone says so. My generation, which I'll say is anyone, I don't know, 25 to 45, we graduated into it. We were molded by it. Something something about subprime loans uh, that aren't happening now. I bought a house eight months before the pandemic started for 200K. It's gone up 140K since then. Such a sharp increase in value is like, awesome, yay, I'm rich. Except it doesn't feel right. Shelter shouldn't be like shitcoin crypto. They're pumping the rates up now to try and throttle back all that inflation, and you can see demand is slowing. There's still more than supply, but prices aren't rising quite as fast. The yield curve is inverting. I'm just kidding, I have no idea what that means. So if you're one of the boatloads of people who kind of decided to just chill out during the pandemic and bunker down, throw on a couple LBs, I wanted to find out if now was a good time to buy a residence, or at the very least, a recycled, vegan-friendly tiny home with an edible mushroom garden. I happen to have a cousin in real estate who lives just 15 minutes away. His name is Skylar Briante. I invited him over to talk. Here he is, assuming that I'm going to make him dinner. Well, no, you don't have to. I didn't know if that was why you brought the duck out. Skylar's parents fixed and flipped houses since he was born, all the way up to the 08 crash. Then his mom became a general contractor. And she's amazing, too. Their house is in Inman Park, this really cool Atlanta suburb. And their back deck is built around a tree. It's insane. I put pictures on the website. Skylar's been an agent for only three years now. His first year, he was Rookie of the Year for his company out of 17 offices. He did $3.7 in sales. This last year, he did $6 million. I mean, he's only 24 years old. Super nice dude. He's a drummer in a band and is renovating his first house. He's going to explain how impossible it is for the housing market to crash right now. There could be. I don't think anybody can predict whether or not there will be a crash. At least right now, we're not seeing many signs that there will be a crash, even though we're in a market where interest rates are rising extremely fast at this point. And it, there are signs of buyer demand decreasing and sellers decreasing their list prices. That doesn't necessarily mean that prices are going down, even though we see that a lot in the news right now. It more just means that a lot of sellers have gotten used to the fact that prices have gone up so fast over the past two years. And over the past two years, you know, before this, you know, slowdown and buyer demand has happened, the sellers can look at their neighbor's house and say, 
well, they sold for this price. The market's so crazy right now. I'll price mine above my neighbor's comparable house that they sold for this price. And then I'll expect to get even more over that overpriced that I'm that I'm going to ask for it because the market's been so crazy over the last two years. So sellers are kind of in that mentality because you get used to it when it's been happening for so long. So right now we're seeing a lot of sellers still in that mentality of testing the market and saying, well, it's been crazy for the last two years. Let's price it way over our neighbors. And that's where we're seeing a lot of price decreases in sellers that are a little unrealistic with where they can expect to get their house sold for in this current market. And that's where you're seeing all the price decreases. So prices are still going up you know, on average overall, at least in Atlanta specifically, there are some areas where prices are going down. But like to your point, like if there's going to be a crash that's happening soon, there could be. But either way, if a crash happens, that will mean that real estate is cheaper, but it doesn't mean that real estate will go back up after that. And if you're planning to buy the house to live in it for, you know, at least five, seven, 10 years, you want to treat it like an investment in a sense. This makes me think of the saying, it's not timing the market, it's time in the market. But a pandemic made it seem like maybe this was a time to time the market you want to think about is the long-term game. So even though you might get lesser property now. I don't know. For me, buying a house is really driven by finding somewhere I want to live. And higher prices mean less happy I'm going to be with what I can get. Sure. But what that property can get you long-term is equity that you're talking about where you bought this house that you're living in right now, Lowell, for... So I bought this sweet little 3-2 in 2019 in the south part of Decatur. I needed a place to live uh, after a breakup. She's very sweet and set me up with the realtor she used, Mike Townsend. Now, Mike was a man, well, is a man, that uses his bountiful beard and bold, beautiful baldness as his brand. I mean, his logo is literally his head. Also a super nice dude. We geeked out on drone stuff. Uh, His website is in the show notes. So Mike took me out to see a few houses. I think this was like the second house I saw. I'd seen other stuff before, and it always looked worse in person. This one looked better. I walked in and I said, let's make an offer. So we closed for 200 and I think I ended up paying just about six grand for a 30-year conventional loan at 3.75% interest. Now it's listed at 330. In those three years, I paid off about 17K off the loan down to 183, but the market value increased 130,000. So my equity gained was about 50K per year. And now you're in a position where you could sell that and upsize to a better house, you know, or you could pull out equity from this and take out a, you know, a loan based on how much your, your property's appreciated and use that for other things that could, you know, make the house nicer. You could improve on the property that you're currently living in. So getting started allows you those opportunities further down the road that you can kind of use to your advantage to level up, you know, whereas if you just sit out on the sidelines the whole time during that five years, you know, prices could have continued going up that whole time. And now you don't really have an asset that you can leverage to get you the thing that you really want. So I think it's about taking baby steps, even though it's a big purchase. It's still about taking baby steps and not thinking that you need that perfect house the first time you buy or something like that. So most everyone, myself included, understandably have some trouble stacking paper with everything being so goddamn expensive. So I was curious, what options exist for shit being expensive? Like, if you don't have 10K plus an emergency fund sitting in some sort of Roth, ETF, crypto, mutual bond fund. There's always loan programs out there for anybody's scenario, even if you have less than 10,000 saved up, even if you have a low credit score, even if you don't have great income, or maybe the way that you're paid, like, is a 1099 situation. There's always situations out there for people that are not going to qualify for, like, a conforming or a conventional loan. The way that most people get mortgages on a property are federally backed loans. So they're backed by Fannie and Freddie Mac, which is the government, essentially. So they insure it, which 
gives them the freedom to give you such great interest rates, which is, which are the interest rates that we know of when we hear the interest rates in the news. You know, the five percent that we're seeing right now, the twos, the threes that we're in the crazy lows in the in the middle of the pandemic. Those are federally backed loans, so you can get loans that are from private, you know, lenders and things like that. Now, granted, you know that's going to come with compromising on your interest rate. Like I was pointing out a second ago, the reason that these conventional loans that you hear about are at such great interest rates, you know, in the fives, below 10% and things like that, it's because they're federally backed. But when you go through private money, you may have a higher interest rate, um, you know, or you may have compromised terms in the way that you pay back the money. So you always want to be cognizant of what you're signing off on. I'm not saying to just buy a property, just to buy a property and be negligent about the terms of your loan and things like that and just getting it just to get it. But if you know how to work the system and you understand that maybe you get a subprime loan right now, but if you're honestly and genuinely working towards getting qualified for a conventional loan, you know, in the next few years, you can go ahead and get that subprime loan now, whatever it may be, however the terms are worked up to get you the house in this current market so you can bank in on the prices that we're at now, assuming that they'll continue going up because historically they have. And then the future you can do what we call like a refinance and refinance to a conventional loan, assuming that, you know, you actually can qualify for a conventional loan in a few years because maybe you adjust your your income scenario or your financial scenario to allow you to get conventionally approved. All right. So first-time homebuyers probably don't have experience with this process, and I have the massive experience of doing it once. So how does one get things started? Um, it sounds really basic, but uh, I mean, you just want to go on Google and search for lenders in your area. Another great place to start is with a realtor. You know, if you already are referred to a realtor or a lender by friends of yours, if you want to be proactive, like I said, you can go ahead and start with a lender before you even start with a realtor. And like I said, just search lenders in your area and give them a call, tell them your situation, what you're trying to do. Some people are a little bit nervous about it because it's intimidating, or some people also hear that you get your credit dinged when you do hard pulls. But when I say that, I'm talking about getting pre-approved for a loan. If you're getting approved for a loan, you know, they will often do a hard pull of your credit. and it Assuming most people system. don't have an issue with this anymore, it drops a few points, but it goes right back. You'll see your score fluctuate much more based on your credit card balance. Anyway, the lender will pre-approve you for a certain amount just based on your income and debt. They call it a pre-qual. Super quick and easy. The other thing you'll need is a real estate agent. The agent will guide you through the process of finding the property and negotiating the terms. The lender will guide you through the process of securing the loan. The first place that I hear about clients closing on property and my clients and things like that, you know, actually getting to their agent is through their friends and family. So, yeah, go to somebody you trust. And if they had a genuinely good experience with their agent, give them a shot. You could even interview a couple different agents and be transparent about that with the agency speak with if you wanted to. So what I recommend is starting with a realtor who will recommend a lender they've worked with before. If you don't know a realtor, just ask a couple of your least dumbest friends who they used. Most people are dying to tell you how much they love their realtor. If you feel like the prices are too high right now and you can't afford a mortgage, then maybe think about getting a three-bedroom or four-bedroom, purchasing a three-bedroom or four-bedroom, and intentionally uh, renting out you know, one or two of the bedrooms to some of your friends or whoever, You know, if you want to post that online. So, while your mortgage may be the same or less than you're paying in rent, it's probably still a considerable portion of your income. They used to recommend no more than 30%, I think, but now it's not uncommon to see it be 50%. Every time I recommend that someone get a roommate in order to offset this cost, I hear, But I like living alone. Uh, yeah, so do I. But a roommate will probably cover like half your mortgage. And if you depleted most or all of your savings to buy, then this is a quick way to at least rebuild your emergency fund. The trendy term is like house hacking. House hacking. Hmm. Maybe that should be the title of this episode. 
I have a wicked weakness for awesome alliterations. You as the landlord also live in the house that you own with the other tenants. And by doing that, you know, you can qualify for your mortgage based on the expected rental income, if that's the way you want to do it, if you really can't afford that priced home, or if you qualify for that price range, but you just personally don't want to fork up that much in what that monthly mortgage payment would be, then you could look at having roommates or adding roommates to the scenario when you purchase that home and having them pay you rent and then you putting that rent towards your mortgage and offsetting your mortgage. So yeah, I think there's a lot of cool options with that too. Yes, roommates can suck, but screen them. The idea of having two roommates and it covering your entire mortgage is pretty damn cool. So just stop funding TikTok with your marinated egg, lion's mane, mushroom, compost toast and let your guest room be a nice place for a nice person to live. Otherwise, it's going to become the room for Amazon boxes. Seen it happen a million times. Anyway, what options are there if you're a genius real estate investor and already bought a house? Like, are you just done now? You can do what we call a refinance, which a refinance is basically just getting a new loan. Uh, So what it looks like is, for example, you currently own your home, maybe you've owned your home for five years already. And so maybe when you bought that home five years ago, you got a 30-year loan term. You, You gave yourself 30 years to pay off your mortgage on this house. Now, five years into that 30-year loan, uh, you decide to refinance for one reason or another, and those reasons we can talk about in a second. But when you go to refinance, you're actually taking out a new loan, and that new loan pays off your first loan, essentially, that loan that you got five years ago. And now you have a new loan, and let's say you refinance with a a 30-year term similar to the one that you got when you first bought the house. Well, now that refinance that you're doing basically restarts your loan timeline. So if you've owned your house for five years and you've you're five years into your initial 30-year timeline from when you bought the house with that original loan. Now, when you refinance five years later, you actually have started over your 30-year timeline again if you go and refinance and get a 30-year loan again, essentially. Okay, so why would I want to restart my loan? Uh, It seems like a bad deal. If maybe the rates have lowered since when you first bought and now interest rates are at a better deal and maybe you want to refi to get a lower interest rate, that's the first case. That's what we saw a lot during the pandemic was a a surge of people refinancing because maybe when they bought their house, their rates were at four and five and six and seven percent. And now during the pandemic, the rates were at like mid twos, like 2.7, 2.8. Um, and then the other reason you might do it, if maybe there's no reason to do it for interest rates. Yeah, so my interest rate is 3.75%. I guess I could have refinanced during the pandemic and gotten it down a point. But if so, I feel like somebody should have told me. Let's make a website that tells you stuff like this. Well, they probably have them, but I always assume it's spam. Anyway, now rates are higher. So what reason is there for me to refinance? In that sense, wouldn't have a reason to refinance in your situation, Lowell. But another way you could do it is what we call a cash out refinance. A cash out refinance is based on the equity that you've gained since you bought. So once again, it's still refinance. You're still getting a new loan. You bought this basically for 200000 Now it's for three fifty. A cash out refinance would basically take the equity. So your equity is the difference between what your house is worth now and what you bought it for. So the difference between three fifty and two hundred would be one hundred and fifty thousand. That's your equity. If this is stuff you already know, believe me, I'm not simplifying this for listeners. I learned this stuff while I was making the episode. I didn't know crap about real estate. Now I know a little bit. So you've got one hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of equity, and a cash out refinance basically gives you a new loan for the current value of property. So now you get a new loan for $350,000. So now you're saying, well, that doesn't sound good because my original loan was only for $200,000. Now with the cash out refinance, I've got a loan for an even higher price for 
$350,000. But I get the reason you do that <laughs> is because the equity, they give you that portion of the loan in the form of just cash in hand. So now you have a loan for $350,000, but if your equity is $150,000, they'll write to you in a check essentially and say, Lowell, you can take this $150,000, use it as cash, do whatever you want with it. You're still paying it back monthly because it's part of the loan, but you can take that 150 and do whatever you want with it for, you know, reasons other than buying another house. But you could also use it but to buy another house. Like, oh, and that's what I should do? That's what you could do. And that's what, uh, with an investment mentality, you'd want to do. Okay, so instead of selling my house and becoming a rich homeless person, I could keep the house, take the equity, and buy another. Then rent this one out to cover the mortgage. You could jumpstart that process of what I just said by physically adding value to the house, which is what a lot of investors do when they purchase it. So they buy a house that needs work. It's a fixer-upper. They buy a house for below market value through the ways of either getting a good deal and or just the property is not as nice as the other houses in the neighborhood. And then after they buy it for that lower price, they put money into it and they make it nicer. And then now that they've made it nicer, it's worth more in a shorter time span because they actually manipulated the value of it by making it nicer instead of just waiting on the market to appreciate in value. And then they go to refi because now it's worth more because they fix it up and they do a cash out refi. So they take the equity. Maybe they bought the property for 200. Maybe after they fix it up, now it's worth 300. Once again, similar numbers to what we we're talking about before. So now they cash out refi a year later after they fix it up and they get a check for 100K because that's the equity that they gained. And they can take that 100K check. And even though it's a loan, even though it's something that they're making a monthly payment on, they can then use that 100K to put a down payment towards another house and continue that process. You could literally rinse and repeat that process, and that's what a lot of real estate investors do. Okay, now the flippers make sense. I don't think I'd be good at doing something like that full-time, but what does interest me is taking the equity and improving my property by converting the carport to another room and bathroom, then renting it out and buying something else I can live in for a few years while I slowly improve that. That's really my takeaway from this, and it applies to first-time homebuyers as well. Think of buying a home as an investment that you also live in for a few years. I always hear that prices and rates shouldn't be a factor in determining when to buy. If you need a place to live, then do it. And I never really wrapped my head around it because after 08, I assumed the market could drop or crash at any time. But I guess the counter logic is that real estate prices historically have always gone up. The people who owned this house before me bought it in 2014 for 120000 Five years later, they sold it for 200 So if you're going to live in the house for at least a few years, the value is going to increase. If the payments are going to be higher than you feel comfortable with or you want to buy something bigger, then get a roommate or two. Scholar's actually helping me look now for that place outside of town. I'm thinking maybe Birmingham? Uh, you just got to watch out for the rednecks, but uh, you got to watch out for them here in Georgia too. So you know, if you're in the area, definitely look up Skylar. I'll put his Instagram handle in the show notes. Oh, I'm back, by the way. I don't work for iHeart anymore, but they're a lovely company, and I still work with them just at a different company. Um, they were nice enough to let me keep making episodes, and I have some really cool ones I'm working on in my free time. Microcontrollers, cyberdecks, 3D printing, and mycology. Probably another ADHD episode. Funny story about that. I met this girl, and like the third time we hung out, I was like, you know you have ADHD, right? It was super easy to spot because she had all the same quirks as me. Uh, anytime I have an amazing conversation with somebody, I'm like, that person has ADHD. She was like, yeah, I've considered it. I've seen videos on social media, but I figured that stuff applied to everyone. 
I'm like, no, no, it doesn't. And while doctors and academics would likely scoff at the idea of influencers giving mental health advice, the DSM-5 is very outdated. I mean, it was when it was published. ADHD looks different than the textbooks, especially in non-white males. So there's all these undiagnosed people, particularly women, walking around. She had really bad imposter syndrome. So I convinced her to get tested, and the doc tells her it's the most severe case of ADHD he's ever seen. It shouldn't be funny, but it is a little bit. But thanks for listening, and I'll be back pretty soon with another episode of Prodigy. Prodigy.